in all my reading, I'm always going back to Hebrews. I read it probably more than any other book. And uh, I just love the imagery there. I love the beauty of Jesus Christ presented to us there. And so we're going to be looking at, at chapter 12, verse 18. Now, before we read this passage, we need some background information. Exactly three months to the day after the children of Israel were delivered from the land of Egypt, they came to the wilderness of Sinai, about six million of them. They set up camp in the wilderness right in front of Mount Sinai. Then Moses went up to God and the Lord called him from the mountain and told him to to tell the children of Israel the following words. You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. This was God's vision for Israel, that there would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So Moses came down and called the elders of all the people and laid these commandments before them, what God had told him. And the people listened, and they, they said this, quote, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. All right? So they gave the affirmative word, and Moses brought back the people's word to God. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I come to you in the thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and believe you forever. So God was going to audibly speak to Moses in front of everybody, okay? First of all, let's talk about one thing here. The difference between cults and the true gospel is that the cults usually, the leaders of cults usually are by themselves somewhere in a dark place and God speaks to them and they come and tell you, this is what happened. It happened with Muhammad, it's happened with all cult leaders. But in the Bible, even God declaring Jesus, he did it in the presence of everybody. Here, the Ten Commandments are going to be given in the presence of everybody. God is going to endorse Moses in the presence of everybody. All right? So, what a powerful endorsement. Can you imagine a thick cloud coming over you and a voice coming out of it and saying, he's the leader? You know, in my travels internationally, I always happen to be the guy that's picked out randomly to be checked. That's just my story. It just happens to be that. And one time I was flying out of Kenya, and uh, this was not a random checkup. I just, I was waiting in line, and I gave them my passport. And the guy looked at my passport. I had a Congo passport then. He looked at my passport, and, and he said, how did you get into the country? And I said, I flew in through this airport here. And he looked at it again. He's like, your passport is not stamped in. So I started thinking, what could have happened? I'm usually careful about stuff like that. But here what happened, when I flew in and the immigration officer opened my passport, he looked at it. And uh, 
I started talking to him in Swahili. And he looked at me with a Congo passport and he says, you're from Congo? I said, yes. And he said, you sound just like a person from here. I said, yeah, I grew up in Ziwani and all these places. And he knew exactly what I was talking about. He knew exactly where I lived. And he, we got excited and started talking. And then he said, oh, you're welcome. He forgot to stamp me in. All right. So now on going out, I was in trouble. And uh, that was one occasion, you just wish, you know, a cloud would just appear. Whatever you told them, you just wish a cloud would just appear. He is true. He is right. Let him go. You just wish that would happen. But, you know. Anyway, reference from God. People right here looking for reference letters from the clergy and things like that. Because somehow it's, it's highly valued. And so we understand that Moses needed this from God. So God gave him an audible uh, endorsement. Then God said to Moses to go tell the people to consecrate themselves. If you don't know what the word consecrate means, it simply means just go get prepared. And basically they were told, wash your clothes, get ready for two days. And on the third day, God said, I'm going to come down on the mountain and I will speak with you. But God also warned, he said, make sure that there's a boundary set around the base of the mountain so that no animal or no person goes up the mountain or tries to peak because the consequence would be instant death. This was serious matter. This was serious matter. So Moses went down to the people and helped them prepare for two days. And on the third day in the morning, there was thunderings and lightnings and thick clouds on the mountain. And there was the sound of the trumpet so loud that the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people to the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was now completely in smoke because the Lord had descended upon it in fire. And the smoke on the mountain ascended like the smoke of a furnace, the Bible says. And the whole mountain quaked greatly. The blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder and louder, and Moses spoke, and God answered him with, he answered him by voice in the presence of all the people. This was the stage set up for the delivery of the Ten Commandments. You can imagine, uh, it was certainly a very solemn place. It wasn't a place that you treaded casually, because to be casual there meant you were going to be consumed. You had to be very reverent. You had to be. It was a fearful place. We're told that with fear, the people stood afar off. You couldn't get close. They stood afar off, witnessing the thunderings and the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. I mean, you can just imagine how gripping that must have been. And the people said to Moses, you speak with us. We will hear but don't let God speak with us, lest we die. That was the power of the voice of God. Literally, the voice of God is a, the way I picture it, it was probably a very powerful, penetrating voice that totally exposed you. It totally exposed you. It totally left you feeling weak. It totally left you totally helpless. Because as the Bible says, Everything is laid bare before God. There's nothing, there's nothing we can hide before God. Nothing. 
You can hide things from me. You can hide things from your wife, your husband, and everything, but there's nothing we can hide before God. He sees right through us. The book of Revelation says that his eyes are like the flame of fire. He'll see right through your being. That's who God is. So this is the scene there. People are frightful. So it's out of here that the whole system of conduct, observances of feasts, holidays, worship, sacrifices, priesthood, etc. was given, Mount Zion. This was in a way the beginning of a brand new nation. Brand new nation made of mostly former slaves and their families led by a man who was born into slavery, lived in royalty, and served as a shepherd for 40 years. Brand new nation. And the Ten Commandments was going to be their constitution. That was going to be their living document. When I took my American history test, I was told the American Constitution is a living document because it can be altered to suit the times. It's living because it can be changed. This was a living document because it could not be altered, but it changed you. It altered you. That was the difference. So the feast then began there. So everything for the Jewish people to this day goes back to this beautiful, solemn, fearful mountain, Mount Sinai. Their way of life, their worldview, their diet, their dress, their relationship with one another, their relationship with it all goes back to this mountain. Everything about their existence was weighed against all that was decreed on this mountain. So that's the backdrop to the passage that we're going to be reading. All right, so let's look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18 to 21. The writer of Hebrews says, For you have not come to the mountain that may be touched, and that burned with fire, and to blackness and darkness, and tempest, and the sound of the trumpet, and the voice of words, so that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. For they could not endure what was commanded, quote, and if so much as a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned or shot through with an arrow. And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I'm exceedingly afraid and trembling. Now, if Moses was afraid, everybody's afraid. That was, that was Mount Sinai. All right. So what is going on here? Why does the writer of the book of Hebrews see it necessary to take his hearers back to Exodus chapter 19 and 20? Well, for us now, 2,000 years removed from the situation that these Hebrews were facing, it's important to us to look at the circumstances that surrounded them. All right? So, from the way some of the chapters in the book of Hebrews read, there was evidently sacrifice still going on in the temple. Now, Jesus had already died and risen, and for those who had believed Jesus Christ, the Jewish people that had believed Jesus Christ, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, they understood as the fulfillment of the law. That all the feasts that were prescribed in Exodus 
and Leviticus, all those feasts, all the furniture, all the utensils, all the days, the days of the month, everything pointed to Jesus Christ. They understood that. And they, they, their eyes were open and they were, wow, the Messiah, the fulfillment is finally here. So these Hebrews believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And they understood that the fulfillment meant all the law, the sacrifices, and all that were rendered null because the fulfillment was there, had come. All right? So these are the Hebrews that the writer of Hebrews is writing to. All right? People that have come to faith in Jesus Christ as their Messiah. Now, here's something else that was happening in that time. The book of Hebrews was also written at a time of great persecution. All right? Jesus, there was a revolution happening. A lot of Jewish people were coming to Christ. The first church, Jesus was a Jew. The church was Jewish. We all have a Jewish heritage. The gospel was first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. We all have a Jewish heritage. So believers were getting persecuted. Believers in Jesus Christ were getting persecuted. James, the brother of John the Apostle, was killed by Herod. Stephen was stoned. Saul, I mean, he was breathing threats against believers. He was converted. People were just, believers were just driven out of Jerusalem. Peter and James, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote letters to those who were scattered all over the Roman Empire. And uh, the persecution just kept mounting and mounting and mounting. Families who believed in Jesus were challenged by relatives and friends about keeping the Mosaic Law. You mean the priesthood means nothing now? Imagine facing your family with a tradition that has been going on for 1,400, 1,500 years and telling them, this is useless now. You mean the priesthood, the priesthood is unnecessary now? You mean the Passover lamb doesn't need to be offered now? You, mean, you can just imagine the pressure. I mean, you're violating their constitution. That's crazy. You don't violate Americans, America's constitution and get away with it. This was seen as a violation of the thing that held them together, okay? So you mean no more circumcision? Moses means nothing? This was a big deal. So persecution mounted, mounted. It was thick and ugly against the believers in the Messiah. It was so bad. Imagine people were kicked out of their own country by their own people. You can imagine how families were separated. You can imagine how husbands and fathers were dragged out of their homes for their faith and being charged for committing crime. And what's the crime? Believing in Jesus Christ alone. You can imagine how many children were orphaned because their moms or dads were executed or imprisoned. Sometimes I think about it, you can imagine how many, the weight that must have been on Paul thinking, I caused this because I caused the church to be persecuted. You know, you can, you can just imagine. That's why he's an amazing, amazing preacher of grace. He's an amazing preacher of grace, and we're going to look at that. You know, imagine wi women that were widowed, you know, because their husbands were dragged out of their houses. The pressure from the religious authorities and families 
to these first century believers was so unrelenting and some of the believers for fear of their lives began to return to the old, familiar, socially acceptable way. All right. And there were some who evidently decided to blend Christianity with Judaism. All right. And to the danger of mixing law and grace. And we'll talk about that. And some of them probably even going back to offering of sacrifices. They were losing their sense of identity with Jesus and their place in society. They were afraid. They were going back. They were giving up. They were a minority. So the right of Hebrews write to these people that are facing this. And one of the things he had to remind them of, first of all, is take them back to what was and take them to where. Give them an understanding of where they are right now in Jesus Christ. And, you know, I've titled this message, Don't Give Up. You're being prepared for a kingdom. But it could be titled, The Tale of Two Mountains. It could be titled that. So the writer of Hebrews now wants to paint a picture of where they were, so it's very clear to them, this is where you were and where they are now. And they're not unlike us, so let's pay attention because this is our story too. This is our story today in 2017 in America. First, he had to remind them that Mount Sinai was where it all started and that Mount Sinai literally was the place of the law, okay? It was the place of the law. It was the place where you were judged by the law, okay? It was the place where you judged by the law. And nobody passed that test, okay? Mount Sinai was the mountain of the law. The law, was, the law rightfully condemns us. Let's, let's get this straight. The law rightfully condemns us because we're all fallen. Mount Sinai, they had to be reminded that Mount Sinai was a mountain that they could not touch without serious consequences. Mount Sinai was a mountain where they could not even peek to look at God without serious consequences. Mount Sinai is where they were exposed and laid bare and trembled with fear, okay? They had to be reminded also, the contrast, that they were now on Mount Zion, okay? Mount, Mount Sinai just pointed to a fulfillment and the fulfillment was Mount Zion. They had to be reminded that they were now in Jesus Christ on Mount Zion, the mountain of grace, where you're rightfully justified, Okay, where you're dressed, you're not exposed, but you're dressed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Where love casts away fear. The love of God casts away fear, so you can draw in. This was Mount Sinai. They had to be reminded of where they were. Now, let me, let me clarify something here. Because for years, I thought the law was a bad thing. And grace was good. And like, there was always a conflict in, a, in my mind. And if this helps you, um, this is going to be worth it. So, let me clarify something here. The law is not evil. The law is very, 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 very good. It was given for our good. The law is very, very, very good. The law declares the truth about you. 
The law diagnoses your problem and tells you this is your problem. That's what the law does. It tells you who you are exactly, okay? So the law is good. It declares to you that you are sin sick. However, the law has no cure for you. It just leaves you there. It just tells you this is who you are. The more we try to fulfill the law on our own, the more we discover that we're failing and failing and failing. It's a slippery slope down. The law, the weight of the law is far above anything that any one of us can carry. The justice bar of God is so high we can't even reach it. That is the law. And that was the purpose of the law, to reveal to you that you need help. And that's what the Apostle Paul says, that the law then becomes a schoolmaster that takes your hand and walks you to the solution, to the person that can take you further. That's the purpose of the law, all right? All the law and the prophets, the sacrifices, the feasts, the utensils, the furniture were all shadows of the real thing. They pointed to Jesus Christ as the fulfillment. Jesus came in the likeness of man, and he fulfilled the law perfectly. He never failed on one count. He fulfilled it, all right? So the law for me, because it points in my quirky, insufficient thinking, the law to me was like the smell of barbecue, all right? If you know me, the smell of barbecue always tells me I'm hungry, right? You smell barbecue, but the smell never satisfies you. It just tells you, man, you need food. You need this. But you never get satisfied from just taking a deep whiff, you know, in a butcher store, you know. It, it just doesn't satisfy you. It just points you. The scripture says the law is like a shadow, that there's a real exhibit that's casting a shadow, and the shadow is the law, okay? So it's the barbecue. And uh, the real exhibit is the steak. You bite into the steak, and that satisfies your hunger, all right? So if that helps you, that's the way I like to look at it. So going back to the law, basically what he's saying, the writer of Hebrews is saying, going back to the law is like going back to hunger, it's like going back to fear. It's like going back to the place where your sickness is exposed. It's going back to the place where your weakness is unveiled and where there's nothing you can do. The law diagnosis. And then Paul puts it in a very interesting way where he says, the law is like a perfect husband. A perfect husband. You're married to a perfect husband. He does nothing wrong. Nothing wrong. But everything wrong that you do, he tells you. Every little thing wrong that you do, he tells you. I mean, a hundred times a day he'll tell you, you didn't do that right, that wasn't washed well, this, that, that. That's what the law does, but it leaves you totally helpless, okay? Now, grace, on the other side, is like a perfect husband who knows exactly everything about you. He knows all your flaws, but he gives you the solution. He gives you the answer. And Paul goes on to say that, you know, we're married to the law for as long as we live. You cannot be divorced from it. You cannot be divorced from the law for as long as you live. The only way you can be pulled away from the law is death has to happen because we're married to the law. Death has to happen. And when death happens, then you're married to another. 
So Jesus Christ came who fulfilled the law, took our sins. The picture is so beautiful. He took our sins and we were buried with him. Therefore, we died. And now we could be married to another who could be married to grace. All right? Where now you're justified completely. It's a beautiful picture. This was what Mount Zion gave you. Grace. This was what Mount Zion gave you. So, these Hebrew believers, for fear of their lives, decided to go back. Okay? Decided to give up. Some of them probably gave up completely. I don't know. But they decided to give up, give up and go back to what was acceptable, even though it was wrong. They decided to go back just for their safety. You know, let's not stir anything. We're going back. So the writer of Hebrews saying, you cannot go back to the law. This is where you are. And so they needed a grand vision of what was on Mount Zion. So let's look at the scripture again. Verse, uh, is it 22? Okay. He says, but you have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels. Okay, let's stop there for, for a second. These people were afraid for their lives, and they were going back to the law. The writer of Hebrews says, you've come to an innumerable number of angels. What's the significance there? If you read 2 Kings, the Assyrian army came to invade Israel. These were elite soldiers. One angel in one night killed 185,000 elite soldiers. One angel. So God is telling them, are you afraid? One angel kills 185,000. Guess where you are? You are surrounded by innumerable number of angels. Do you feel protected to know that? The writer of Hebrews is trying to strengthen these people to say, don't give up. Because you have, there is more that are for you than those that are against you. He's trying to encourage them. And I'm here this morning to say, that's our story. I don't know where you are for fear. Maybe you're caving into something. Oh, there is more for you on Mount Zion through the blood of Jesus Christ than there are those that are against you. You have innumerable angels for you. The Bible says that angels are actually given to serve the children of God. They are our servants. How insane is that? But that's what we have. So be confident. Now, here's the other thing. It says, you've come to the, there's so many things we could pick out here, but I'm just going to say a couple of things. Just to paint a picture of what Mount Zion, what we have when we come to Jesus Christ. Okay? Now, we come to the church of the firstborn. Now, Jesus Christ is the firstborn. We have Adam, who's called the first Adam, and then we have Jesus Christ, who's called the second Adam. They were both, in a sense, firstborns, because they were firstborns of their kind. The Bible says that the first Adam became a living soul. The second Adam became a life-giving spirit. There's a contrast. First Adam became a living soul, needed to be breathed upon to live. The second Adam is the life-giving spirit. All right. The first Adam was put to sleep, and out of him a bride came. 
I think the sleep was really deep. I, I, I almost think it was, personally, I almost think it was death. <laughs> he went to death. Because Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls and dies, it, it'll never produce. Personally, I think something really close to death must have happened there. And out of that, there was a life came out of life came out of that. Adam's helped me. The second Adam was not put to sleep. He chose to go into a deep sleep for you and me. And when he rose, he brought many sons to glory. He brought the bride. Bride came out of him. You and me, the bride of Christ. So we're surrounded by a multitude of angels. We're surrounded with the general assembly of the church of the firstborn, all right, who are registered in heaven. To God, the judge of all. We're in the presence of God who's a judge. We're not facing him as one who judges us for our sin. We're facing him as one who defends us. This is what the writer of Hebrews is trying to tell these people. You have a God for your defense. You're standing in the midst of innumerable angels and in the midst of men and women who are just and made perfect. And, and here's the big one here. Here's the big one. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. There's so many things, you know, that we could say about Jesus Christ. But let me just say this. Job's cry was that he wanted a day's man. He wanted a mediator that could touch God and touch man at the same time. Job's cry was that. Where is a mediator that can touch God and touch me at the same time? I want a mediator that can touch God as God and a mediator that can touch me as man that understands me. You realize that was, that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So Jesus left the throne of heaven, the splendor of heaven. He came down. He was made lower than the angels. We're told that we're made lower than the angels. He was made lower than the angels. In other words, he was made like us. He came and became like us. And he took on our form. He took on our sensibilities. He took on our skin. He was born of a woman. He had 23 chromosomes from Mary, 23 chromosomes from the one who makes chromosomes. He was God and man, fully God, fully man. He came for us, and he tasted our life. He knows our pain. He knows everything about us. He knows the power of temptation upon us. He knows what attracts me to what shouldn't. He knows what draws me here. He knows what makes us wait. He knows all that. He understands. He understands. Okay, so he became that. And we are told that he tasted death on our behalf. He tasted death on our behalf. This is the center of Mount Zion. This is who stands in the center of Mount Zion. One who tasted death on your behalf. Death is a fearful thing to talk about in most cultures. I don't know about your home. In my African culture, you never talk about death because it's seen as inviting it. You know, so you don't even talk about it. And early in Hebrews, the Bible says that Jesus came and tasted death so that he may destroy the one who holds people in bondage through the fear of death. Jesus came for that purpose. Now, death will find 
every one of us at some point somewhere and take away our precious lives. Death will find you. I don't care where you go. It'll find you someday. Death could not find Jesus. Matthew 10, 18, Jesus says, no man takes my life. I give it and I take it up. Jesus chose to go to death and have death arrest him. He chose it for you and me. That's the depth of his love for us. Jesus remained faithful, faithful to the very end to identify with us. I hope that encourages us. This is where we stand in God. I don't know what fears you're dealing with. I don't know what compromises you've already made because you, you don't want to look a certain way or whatever, some perceived thing. But you have God with you. Don't go back. Don't go back. Don't go back to the law. Now, maybe you didn't grow up around law and things like that. Don't go back to your old ways of survival. That's what we do. We didn't grow up with the law, but we have our own survival way that we always go back to. Don't go back to that. And it's here I want to share a little bit of my testimony. Several years ago, this has nothing to do with anybody in this room. Let me just get that out there. This person is not here. All right. Several years ago, I went through a time of depression. It varied every day. You know, some days it was intense, other days it wasn't. And uh, as time went on, I realized that I was not improving. Things were just getting, I was getting more and more depressed. And I really wasn't, it, wasn't, it really wasn't until I was delivered from it that I realized that God had been trying to shake off something from me. Now, if you read the scripture to the very end, it says Mount Sinai shook, the earth shook, that someday God is going to shake from heaven. He's going to shake heaven and earth so that, so that whatever is shakable is shaken off so that what remains is only what's unshakable. That's the end of this passage here. God's going to shake from Mount Zion. He's going to roar. He's going to shake the whole earth so that only what's unshakable remains. All right? So I'm going through a time of depression, and I was, I was just, I, I got to a place where it got so bad to a place where I, I would feel like my head swelling up, like pressure just building my head. I don't know if you've ever been stung by a swarm of bees. My head felt this big. And over time, I just, you know, God had been trying to speak to me about an issue in my life that was very deep-seated. I held unforgiveness against this person. I worked with this person. And uh, it was just very difficult. I didn't feel like he, I was treated the way I deserved. I had a strong sense of right and wrong, and they felt like, I felt like they were wrong. Uh, as life went on, things were just not improving. And this person, uh, I resorted to my familiar survival dealings with people. I was quiet. My answers back to him were just yes, no. It never opened up. I just totally withdrew from the person. I remember praying and fasting every week that God would deliver me, that God would deliver me, that God would deliver me, but nothing happened. But the unforgiveness just went on. I didn't realize that that was 
really the cause of it until, I'm ashamed to say, seven years into it. One day it just occurred to me, I was just like, I cannot be holding this grudge against this person. I need to talk to him. So I went to him and I said, look, I, uh, I've owed you love for seven years. I have put myself out there as one that knows more than you do, and that's pride. And uh, I want you to forgive me, and uh, I love you. There was no fuzzy or warm feeling. I just said it just as truth, like this is the truth. I need to love this person. My depression lifted, and it was gone, 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 gone. And I entered into a place of freedom that I never thought existed. God, for seven years, had been trying to shake a shakable thing in me. And that's what happens with trials. Trials are just, they come to us just to shake us so that we get to the point where we're ready to receive the kingdom, the unshakable kingdom of God. So I'm here to say, the writer of Hebrews is here to say, don't give up. I don't know what you're going through. Maybe you're being shaken right now. Maybe God wants to shake off your unforgiveness, your resentment. Maybe you're being targeted unfairly. It's all, it's all a means of grace from the mountain of grace. It's everything that touches you is a means of grace from the mountain of grace that you might give grace, that you might give grace to those you don't feel deserve it. So it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will be so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race until you see Jesus Christ. We are on Mount Zion. We're surrounded. We're conquerors because he loved us. Not because of what we've done. Because of what he's done for us. We're conquerors. So... Stay the course. Don't give up. Jesus is your treasure that someday you will see face to face. Beauty beyond description. Love beyond description. You're going to be swallowed up in intimacy with Christ. It's all worth it. Run race.